Good morning. Uh, the, the Bible reading this morning comes from Ruth chapter 4, and you can find that on page 266 of the Brown Bibles. Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if not, if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalising transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephathra and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. 
and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Michelle. Good morning. How are you going? Good. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, keep that passage open and you might want to also grab out your notes. Uh, that might be helpful as well. What do you do when you feel empty or distant from God's love? How do you remember the fullness of God's love for you in those moments when life feels bleak? The book of Ruth is a perfect short story and in a traditional literary sense it's a comedy it starts with tragedy it ends in triumph it starts um, going south it ends going north everything's good in the end and as we look at chapter four the final chapter together together today um, we see at the end a number of different strands in the story all come together in a most satisfying conclusion Boaz's worth is proven, Ruth and Boaz get married, Naomi's emptiness is made full, and God's been working behind the scenes to bring about a great king. Uh, and through all those different strands, Ruth is a picture of God's love for his people. That's the meta-narrative going on. Um, but why have the book of Ruth? I'm pretty sure if you've read your Bible, if you've picked up the Bible at all, You've heard that God loves you. Uh, and sometimes when we hear that, God loves you, it kind of goes over our heads, we miss it, um, because it, it doesn't really tell you that much, does it? How do you know when somebody loves you? The answer, the love, is in the detail, isn't it? Uh, last year, Naomi, my wife and I, went to about, and this year I think, we went to about 10 weddings in the space of about three months. It was ridiculous. All of our friends, a lot of our friends got married at once. And you can imagine the year before, uh, we heard about 10 different engagement stories and engagements. What's the first thing uh, you ask someone when they tell you they're engaged? Normally it's, how did you do it? Uh, how did he ask the parents? Or how did she ask the parents for that matter? Was it a shotgun wedding? How did it happen? Did she know anything was happening? Did she know a ring was bought? But did he know a ring was bought? Uh, you know, and there's stories of following trails that only, you know, questions and trails that only he or she would know about. There's stories about, um, you know, it happening in a romantic place that meant a lot to both of them, or going to a restaurant that they desired to go to for a long time or something like that. As I was preparing, I asked somebody, um, how did you, you know, propose? How did you do it? And they said, oh, it happened over a pool table. And I just thought, oh, that, I won't share that story because that doesn't help my point at all, you know. <laughs> and he said, well, no, the, the pool table was really significant. It was the place where we met. 
I remember the exact sentence over the pool table that we spoke to each other, you know, and it worked because it was finely tuned. It meant a lot to her. The love is in the detail. The love is in the how. The story of Ruth, this story that we're looking at, works like that. It shows us how God loves us. It's all about the detail. It points. It gives us pictures of how God loves us. It's here to make us know, feel and understand God's love for his people and give us pictures of his love for us. Something that we can cling to when we're feeling like giving up. I imagine there's a number of different people in the room. I imagine uh, there's a few different categories of people in the room. There's, There's some of us who have been married to God, let's say, for a long time. Uh, and I, I imagine, you know, I still love asking married couples who have been married for a long time, how did you first get together? Because often I see in those moments a twinkle in the eye, a rosy cheek or a softening between them because they remember the love and how that love was expressed. So maybe you're in the room this morning, you've known God for a long time. But I, I want to ask you this morning, what things sustain you? What things do you remember about your love for one another that keep you going on when things get a little bit crusty? Maybe some of you are in the room uh, and you're new to God's love. Maybe you've just become a Christian, something like that. Let me ask you, what's going to sustain your love through the honeymoon period? What's going to keep you going? Maybe some of you have never experienced God's love um, before. What's going to get you interested in God and his love for you? What's going to keep you coming back to church or to read the Bible or to prayer to find out about God's love? I think there are several things in this passage uh, where we see God's love, several pictures that are given to us where we see God's love. The first is, is that God's love for us is legal. God's love for us is legal. Um, There are three different scenes in this last chapter, and the first one is of a court scene. It's of a court. Uh, Have a look at verse verse 1 of chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate. Now, a town gate in ancient Palestine was actually a meeting place for legal proceedings. This is the business end of town. And that's what happens as he gathers the elders and gathers the guardian redeemer and things like that. I just want to take you to the climax of this legal scene, though, in verse 3. And what I want you to notice is that what happens here is legal. What I want you to notice is Boaz's dutifulness and his diligence. I want you to notice that he dots the I's and crosses the T when it comes to proper procedure on how he's going to show his love to Ruth. Verse 3, Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Now the word redemption comes up 23 times in the book of Ruth, this short story. It's a significant uh, idea, significant to what's going on. And redemption in Ruth is a legal practice. 
that kind of rolls two laws into one. The first law is property redemption. That's what Boaz has just talked about. Leviticus 25, this is before Ruth in Israel's laws. If your brother becomes poor and sells a part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Property redemption by a relative assured that land would not remain outside the family in perpetuity. In other words, the family would always have a place in Israel. And now considering Naomi and who she is, she's of age, she's probably beyond childbearing, she's got no kids, it's probably a really good deal to take her land because it means it would just become a part of your wealth and your land and because she can't pass it on to anyone. So we're told this guardian redeemer is excited and he says, I'll take it. At which point our hearts sink because we want Boaz to redeem the family. But Boaz has something up his sleeve, part two of the legal practice of redemption, verse five. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. There's a catch. With the land, you also get Ruth. The second part of the legal practice of redemption was that it it involved a man marrying his brother's, his dead brother's childless widow in order to provide an heir for his brother. Deuteronomy 25, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now here's the thing. A redeemer wasn't obligated to do this. It requires a relative who's willing to sacrifice his own wealth, privileges and inheritance in order to redeem the family. And secondly, it was only a brother, a direct brother, that was required to marry, to go about that second part of the law. And since Boaz and this other guy are not brothers directly, they they did not have to marry Naomi or Ruth. But Boaz is appealing to the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. He's saying, in this situation, someone should really take care of Ruth. And in this moment, he reminds Mr. So-and-so that Ruth is a Moabite, at which point, all of a sudden, buying, redeeming the land doesn't seem like a good idea, and Boaz thinks, gotcha. Verse 6, at this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Because he sees that Ruth might have an heir and one day the land and the wealth might go to her and her heir, he thinks, this is a little bit too costly for me. Now to prepare us, I know that's a lot of detail. There's a lot of legal stuff happening there, isn't it? Isn't there? Verse 7, the author explains what happens next. I love that. I wish the Bible had more little explanatory notes like this. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and removed his sandal. This moment is the hammer coming down. This is the first climax in the book of Ruth. This is the signature at the bottom of the contract, the pen 
The ink from the pen is drying as we speak. This means the deal is done. It's final. It's complete. There's no going back. The swapping of a sandal. Uh, My wife and I watched a movie this week called Instant Family. Has anyone seen Instant Family? I'll recommend it to you. It's a comedy drama about a couple that want to start a family, and they end up doing that through fostering some kids. And apparently it's based on a true true story that the director himself went through, which explains why I was choking up the whole time. Uh, The film follows this experience of the relationships between these foster parents and the foster kids, Um, And the the kids are in foster care because their biological mother struggles with addiction and has been in and out of jail. And their situation is up in the air. Uh, And in the end, switch off now if you don't want to know the end of the story, Uh, or towards the end of the movie, um, what the kids really need, obviously, is a stable home. They need certainty. They need a love that doesn't leave them. Um, And in the end, the court grants custody of the children to the biological mother. And your heart sinks. You think, oh no, like history's going to repeat itself. This isn't isn't ideal. And just in the final moments where the mother is meant to pick up the kids from the foster care home, uh, she doesn't turn up because she's relapsed and she's gone back to jail. And a few months later, you know, the movie does this little montage thing. A few months later, the kids are in court with their foster parents, and the hammer comes down, the signature's signed, there's a swapping of a sandal, and the kids are adopted into this loving, safe, caring family. And the judge actually turns on some music, and they take some photos, and there's a party in the courtroom, because the love is now legalized. It's complete, it's final. The love is legal. There's a swapping of a sandal. I want you to imagine for a moment that the paperwork in that story wasn't done. Imagine if the foster parents didn't go to court. They decided it was too hard, too expensive, legal, boring. Imagine if Boaz didn't go through with it with Ruth. Imagine if he told Ruth, I love you. Tomorrow I'll do all this stuff for you. And the next day, his alarm went off and he went, it was a late night, it was a big night, I'm going to sleep in. Imagine if he said, hey, Ruth, let's elope. Because gathering everyone together, talking everybody through everything, the swapping of the sandal, it's just a bit much. Let's Let's just run away. It's the swapping of the sandal that shows you his love that shows us Boaz's loyalty, his commitment, his goodness, his kindness, his praiseworthiness. In the same way, in the Christian message, when we see that God's love for us is legal, when we see that God swapped a sandal for you in the cross of Jesus Christ, that we see God's love and all that it is for us. Jesus on the cross is that great swapping of the sandal for us. Listen to the legal language of the New Testament. Listen to this language of swapping. Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to the legal language of Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Listen to the redemptive language of Ephesians 1. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus and his death, God paid the debt of your sin. That's redemption. And legally, your status before God has, has changed. You're no longer guilty, you're innocent. You're no longer a slave, you're free. You're no longer an outcast, you're adopted. The hammer is down, the verdict is in, the sandal has been swapped. God's love for you is a legal kind of love. The second picture we see is that God's love is personal. If we were just in a court setting, and now it moves to the setting of a home, there's a marriage, there's childbirth, there's the women of the community, and there's free daycare, otherwise known as grandparenthood. Uh, what I want you to notice about this next section, though, verses 13 to 17, is that the story deals primarily with Naomi and Ruth's personal situation. We see their personal circumstances change. In a moment, we're about to zoom out and see that this story goes to absolute cosmic levels. But for a moment, I want us to pause and just notice that God's love and care is for two poor women in the backwaters of Israel some 3,000 years ago. In this last scene, um, it mirrors the introductory few verses. There's actually the exact same amount of words in verses 14 to 17 as there is in 1 to 5, the beginning and the end. In the beginning, we saw Naomi's emptiness. Naomi was left without two sons and a husband. And here we hear about Naomi's personal fullness. Notice that in verse 14, Ruth has the child, but the women say, the women said to Naomi, verse 14, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Talking about their son, may he become famous throughout Israel. Naomi had no sons, now Naomi has a son. Naomi had no future and no hope, now Naomi has a grandson who can redeem her if, if anything goes wrong again. Verse 15, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Naomi was too old for family. Now she has family. Naomi was bitter and now her pleasantness is renewed. There's personal transformation taking place. Naomi was without the love of a family, but listen to this in verse 15. I love this. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. Sons were everything to Jewish mums. Seven is the number that is perfection in the Jewish language. Seven sons is the picture of an idyllic family, an idyllic home, idyllic love within a family. Do you know this is the only time in the whole book of Ruth that the word love is used? And you thought it was a love story. And it's love between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. I started by talking about examples of people getting engaged. Let me just say, you don't need to be married in order to experience love in all its fullness. Naomi is, Ruth is better to Naomi than an idyllic home full of seven sons. That's pretty extraordinary love. What does this mean for us? Well, while God's love for us is legal, God has done something that is written in law in the highest court, not the high court, the heavenly court, while his love for us is legal, it's also personal. It's personally life-transforming. That doesn't mean God gives you everything you want. That's not love. 
But he does give us more than we need. And every little gift, every little desire met, every little change we experience in our life, every moment of fullness, every turning around in our lives should be ascribed to him and his personal love for us. I love that we know the names of the characters. He knows the name of Ruth. God knows the name of Naomi. He knows your name. His love is for you. God listens to prayers, individual prayers, big and small. Just think about the kinds of people in this story that he has loved. He's loved those in hardship, politically, socially, culturally. He cares for those who are hungry, the poor, the brokenhearted, the widow, the grieving, the bereaved. He cares for the outsider, the foreigner, the refugee, the displaced, the marginalized, the barren, the homeless. He cares for those moving house. He cares for those running away and those returning. He cares for the bitter, the angry, the empty. He cares for the farmer and the farmhand. He cares for the old men and the young men, the single women, the married women, the children. He cares for the wealthy, the community leaders, the small business owners. God's love for us is personal. And it doesn't matter about your background, inside or outside, a Christian background, non-Christian background, Christian parents, non-Christian parents, nice person, bad person, it doesn't matter who you are, God's love is for you. I don't know whether you've ever met those kinds of people that you think to yourself, oh, they'd make a really good Christian. Have you ever met those kind of people? They're really nice, something like that. You think, that idea is rubbish, isn't it? I heard a story this week, a kid from school scripture, SRE, came to youth group and the youth leaders were kind of shocked because it was that kid that sat at the back of the class who mostly ignored what was going on. And they thought to themselves, there's plenty of kids at Scripture that would make really good Christians. They get all the work done, they sit there studiously, they fill in every answer, they know all the answers. That idea that someone would make a really good Christian is rubbish. Because in the same way that Ruth is a part of God's story, we're a part of God's story. And that is by grace. God's love for us is personal. It's for you. It's for us. No matter who you are. Finally, the, the final picture that we have of God's love in this narrative is historical. Uh, and that brings us to the genealogy in the end of the book. The most exciting bit, right? <laughs> to our modern ears, they're pretty uninteresting. But I think even this one goes off with a bit of a bang. Have a look at verse 22. It says, Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. That's King David. In other words, Ruth, this foreigner, this outsider, this nobody in the backwaters of Israel, has become the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. And I imagine... You remember how Ruth 1 started in the period of the judges where there was social and political chaos? I imagine if you're someone reading the book of Ruth in the time of King David, you read this story and you're thankful that God has worked in the most desperate times, in the most difficult times, in the darkest times. God has worked to save his people, to bring his people peace, to redeem his people through a great king. 
And you think, wow, God loves us. Historically, he's loved us. What I want you to do, this genealogy goes a little bit further. I want you to turn with me to page 966 in your Bible. This is the first page of the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, where we find this genealogy again. Matthew, page 965, excuse me. 965, chapter 1 of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 3. We pick up about halfway through. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of King David. We've got the same genealogy, the same people in history in this genealogy. Now just run your finger down the page, up to the next column, a bit further down. Have a look at verse 16. Watch where this lineage, this history goes. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. You notice that? Ruth becomes the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of the most significant person in human history, the most important person in human history. The greatest person who ever lived. But what I want you to notice is this, simply. He's historical. This event happened. It's real. It's happened in our history. We began this morning with a creed that said, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate. He became man of the Virgin Mary. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, a historical figure, and suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. This event happened. It's historical. God's love for us is historical. God has loved us in human history. That's an aspect of love that we see in this story. And just as the Israelites would have seen God's love and kindness in the fact that he brought about King David through the dark times of Judges, we see God's love in the fact that he sent his son into history, into human history, into our history. Try and refute God's love and you've got to reckon with historical data. You have a God who has lived with us. He lived with us for some 33 years. He died upon a Roman cross some 2,000 years ago. I think one of the greatest assurances that Christians can have is that God's love for us is historical. If you believe in Jesus, history is on your side. So where do you go when you're looking for his love? Where do you go when you're looking for God's love? Do you try and conjure up a a warm feeling within? Do you look for a coincidence in your week that reminds you of God's love, an answered prayer, a hope, a wish? The story of Ruth reminds us there are many facets to the diamond of God's love for us, many ways of seeing, knowing, and feeling God's love. But this last chapter reminds us that God's love for us is legal in the swapping of a sandal. It reminds us that God has changed our status. He's adopted us into, as his family. It reminds us that his love for us is personal. No matter who you are, what your background is, 
His love has your name on it. And his love continues in our daily lives and how he provides for us. And his love is historical. You can't erase Jesus from history. God has sent his son to us. I'm thankful for the book of Ruth. Are you? Because in it we see God's love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you for how we see your love in detail. Thank you for the images that you've given us that have swept us away in your love. Thank you for the picture today we had of the swapping of a sandal. Thank you for the picture today that we had of the spreading of wings as Boaz married Naomi and provided for, married Ruth and provided for Naomi. Thank you for the provision that we see in our own lives. Thank you for that final picture of you sending a son into human history. Thank you that your love for us is historical. Lord, help us, even today. Maybe we've been a Christian a long time, but we're a little bit crusty and we need to be reminded of your love. Maybe we're new to Christianity and we need to know something that's going to keep us moving forward and holding on to you. Maybe we've never heard of your love before. Lord, I thank you for these pictures of your love. May we trust in your love for us, the love that we know in Jesus Christ. Amen.